Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, the final episode of season one. We've done it. 24 episodes, over 22 hours of conversation with 26 different contributors. Season one of the Life and Leadership Podcast is complete. Thanks for supporting it. I hope it has been a source of encouragement and inspiration to you. Each of the conversations that I had, I think, offered some beautiful moments of inspiration and insight that have certainly helped shape my experience of ministry over the past 12 months. And whilst there are many moments and many things I could include in a top five, I've selected for this episode five things that have stayed with me, five comments that have lived long in my memory. And so here we go. Get ready for the top five standout lessons on the Christian life and leadership from season one. Number one, and the first comment that I want to bring you comes from my conversation with Dr. Kate Middleton, who's a Christian leader and psychologist. We were talking about the subject of mental illness, and here's what she said. It's an interesting question. To some degree, the answer depends on your definitions, doesn't it? Now, what we've seen is a season that universally has challenged our mental and emotional well-being. But in a way, the, the question that you've just asked reveals a bit of a problem in terms of how we think about mental and emotional well-being, because we tend to think of it too much as a sort of two-box model. So we think, again, it's we try and think of it as binary. We're either well or we're ill, and there's no space in between. And, and hopefully we spend most of our life in the well box, but occasionally something crazy happens like global pandemic. And if we're unlucky, it, it puts enough pressure on it that one day, pop, we sort of quantum leap from one box into the other and become ill and 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 the risk is is that if that's our model we don't engage we don't do anything about our mental health until we hit crisis and become really what we would then call unwell because something feels dramatically different enough or bad enough that we would now put ourselves in that ill box and the reality is of course it's it's a line you know we all have mental and emotional health like we all have physical health and life pushes us up and down that line and a season like the one we've been in has probably pushed us all down a bit i think almost everyone and and that in some ways as a psychologist you know there's there's a sort of benign fascination with watching everybody you know get pushed down the line and and also watching the gradual disintegration of your own sort of normally very stable mental and emotional well-being because we've all been put under pressure we've all had moments where that has shown you know we should be putting things into place right away not waiting till we become really ill but I've been doing stuff every day for eight months now that are designed to try and keep me treading water keep me going through a difficult season keeping my kids going keeping my family going I'm interested in how to support a husband who's been working from the same box office room for eight months now you know it's it's hard for people who've been working at home for that long and who've lost their normal connections and getting out of the house you know so I think we do need to think about well-being rather than illness. Number one is that we need to shift the conversation from talking about mental illness to conversations about mental wellness. As much as everyone's been keyed in to think about and be aware of our mental health, Kate's encouragement in episode eight was that we ought to move the focus of the conversation in a different direction. She said there to think of it not in terms of a binary, ill or healthy, but in terms of a line, a spectrum of well-being. 
Overemphasis on mental health can create the impression that we catch neurosis like we catch COVID. And if we're not careful, it can result in a kind of helplessness that implies there's very little that we can do about it. That it's just a malady of our age, something that we need to live with like consumption was in the 1800s. And whilst not denying genetic predisposition, Kate's encouragement here was that we instead need to be more proactive at maintaining wellness. Her five tips that we went on to discuss together were this. Number one, manage your stress levels. Be aware of how close you are to becoming overwhelmed. Number two, recognize the value of negative emotions in your life. They're there to teach you something. Number three, get some processing space into your life. And we talked about the value and significance of the Christian Sabbath, having a day a week where you down tools from domestic work and vocational work in order to focus on God and refreshment in him. Number four, overcome your negative biases. Learn where they are in your psyche, that proclivity or tendency you have to fall off one side of the horse or the other. Learn where those are and learn ways and tools to overcome them. And number five, she stressed the importance of people, that we need other people to help us. Really helpful, really practical. Shift the conversation from discussing mental illness to instead focusing on the spectrum of mental wellness and what we can do about it. All right, well, number two comes from my conversation with David Bennett from our conversation released back in February of this year. I asked him the question of whether or not he thought the church should have responded differently to the redefinition of marriage bill. Here's what he had to say. So this is a really good book um, that was written by someone called Augustine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I have uh, Augustine tattooed on my arm. Do you actually? Yeah, I think like we need to read this stuff. So that's the city of God you're holding up. Yeah, okay. Because... This is the same question that Christians have always had. Like, we have so many resources at our hands. We don't do anything with them. And as evangelicals, we're particularly guilty of this. We don't read Christian history. We don't look at, at the story of our brothers and sisters in similar states in, of time and history mm. and how they dealt with the same question. Because there were things being passed in law that didn't accord with the gospel. And so, like, how do you live, you know, in the city of earth as the city of God. And that question is just like one that you just have to answer as a Christian. You have to just spend some time investing in. And Augustine's like the place to start because he hatched a very profound vision from the roots of scripture and what Paul said and what Jesus said and the New Testament said and the Old Testament said and gave us like a whole way of doing this. And so he says, you know, there are times where we can agree on goods with the city of earth and we can politically work together with the city of earth. And there's times where the city of earth are going to disagree with us and we're going to clash. And, and almost like some Christians are called to the clash and some Christians are called to the like joining. And, you know, and I think God has variously designed it that there are people who are called to, differ with the city of earth and say there's a different way we as Christians want to go. But even if there's a different way we're called to go, we still have to be here with the city of earth, non-Christians, people who don't want to live with Jesus. And we have to relate to them within the government, you know, and then other Christians who we would think are compromised are not living in the fullness and are actually gone with the city of earth and are compromising their pilgrimage to God. And we have to learn to relate to them too within the, polity of the church you know and so i think for me it's a complicated question i think but that god through the body of christ the church in our 
separate vocations, you know, we'll answer that and work it out if we just do it with him. And and I think there are people called into politics in different spaces. And for me, with the question of gay marriage, it was very interesting in Australia because I was asked. So in Australia, it wasn't just passed through parliament, through like a kind of consensus in a political party. It was passed basically first through a plebiscite where they asked everyone, you know, what's your view on marriage? What do you think marriage is? And so when I was asked that question as a Christian, I had to say, well, I'm part of this other trajectory as a pilgrim. I'm not going with the city. (laughs) So I think marriage is this. And um, before God in my conscience had to say what I really thought marriage was. And I don't think it's between two men or two women simple so I voted no (laughs) and however unpopular that is or if I go through persecution because of it well so be it I'm not going that way Mm. um now if my government decided that they wanted to go a different way and there was a consensus that actually gay marriage is this then some sense as a Christian my role is to accept that um but still to say but I'm going in a different way as the church and i think the thing that's really difficult for me is the church of england because if they compromise on this what they are opening up is a an area of destroying the identity of the church as a different community that is on the way to a different city a different existence mm. and they're destroying that witness because yeah and so that, that for me is why the church has to be a place where gay marriage isn't permitted. And we're already seeing the Episcopalian church is going to be completely empty by 2050 because there is no existence of distinction. You're living as the city of earth. You've lost being the city of God and it's over mm. as soon as you do that. And that's why gay marriage is so contentious because it has that power, mm. you know, and it kills the, it's killing the, the church is dying <laughs> It's losing its way in that pilgrimage journey. So that's how I'm understanding it. It's helped me. I think Augustine, just reading him, has really helped me navigate the difficulties. And also being able to then reach across the city of earth and say, we understand why you love marriage and we don't want to keep it like from you like and respecting gay couples and gay married couples and stuff. Like That's important too. So it's the, the crossover, the, the double-edged sword of Augustine's political theology that I think is what we need to develop as a church of both making peace with the city of earth, but being completely distinct from it, um, you know, is the tension we have to live in as Christians. Talking with David Bennett about sexuality was an absolute privilege and the need for Christians to engage deeply with scripture and culture on the subject has never been more important than it is now. David's response to my question was interesting. His point was essentially that Christians are citizens of the city of God and we mustn't think or be or live as the world does. We are those who have bowed the knee to the Lordship of Christ. And Western Christianity is perhaps struggling in the way that it is because it's forgotten who we are meant to be. Indeed, who we're called to be. We're called to be set apart from the world, not entangled in the arguments of the world. All that being said, whilst at the same time acknowledging the need for Christians and for churches to treat people in the city of man with the dignity and compassion and respect that they deserve as image bearers of God. A fascinating conversation. Here's number three. (laughs) 
And I think this was the um, this was the eye opener for a lot of white people whose hearts are pure that they did not realize that there was quite a lot of kind of background stuff that you just see as normal. It's 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 normal. Um, I was saying to somebody, you do realize that there are certain places I will not go to on holiday. You know, in Europe, for instance, because a I'm probably going to be the only black person for miles, and it's so uncomfortable. Um, I remember going to somewhere um, in I won't mention the country, um, but it wasn't the capital. I I ventured further in, and I got stared at, pointed at. It was just uncomfortable. If you are a white person, you just don't even think about that. You just you know. You know, so even going backpacking, you've got to think about it twice. Actually, who have I got with me? Where am I going to? So there's little things like that that people don't understand. So that when we, you know, when you say things like, well, but you know, not everyone's racist and and you excuse it away, you're not actually hearing what we're saying because some of these things are quite unconscious. There's unconscious bias. You know, some of these things are just, ingrained in the culture that we've grown up in that you don't actually experience it the way that I probably will experience it. Another example, there's a girl that um, had just finished her nursing. So what one of the things I love doing is actually just mentoring up and coming nurses within the church and, you know, just supporting them. And I said to her, where are you going to apply for a job? And she said, oh, I'm going to go there and there. And I said, oh, what about this hospital? She went, oh, no, I'll never get, I'll never get um, a job there and I said why she said well there aren't many black nurses in that place and it's true and when I started my nursing when I was looking for somewhere to do my um, nurse training I purposely didn't go to the prestigious colleges because I never thought I'd get in so these are things that are on the inside of us as well so we it stops us from entering places so that's why it's important to see black representation everywhere Number three is that the reality of racism affects everyday choices for people of colour. Kemi Colioso has become a hero of mine. She is such an inspiring woman on many levels, in gifting, in faithfulness, in passion, and most of all, in her humility. She was unassuming and self-deprecating, but also packed a real punch with what she had to say. And her comments about race really helped drive home to me, a white man from Middle England, just how much the reality of racism and the differences felt by people of different skin colours impacts everyday life for people of colour. She said there are countries in Europe that I won't go to on holiday and then referenced the example of a friend not applying for certain jobs, again because of the colour of her skin. Imagine that, a family having to think about and decide their holiday destinations because of something as inconsequential as the colour of their skin. Many people like Kemi don't have to imagine that because it's a major part of their lived experience. We live in a broken world where sin and prejudice runs deep and wide. And for us to build thriving church families, we need to all recognise the daily indignities that some members of our churches have to put up with. When it comes to the black experience, many of us white folk need to listen longer and learn to speak less. These are not challenges with straightforward solutions, but they do need deep and empathetic communities to validate them and to help them. Which leads me on to the fourth standout moment from the podcasts over the past year. I think the, the heart response is really important because there is a sense in which we rightly automatically feel um, 
compassion, heartbreak, even when we uh, recognise the distress that transgender people, people with gender dysphoria experience. I think the reason why I put it up front and centre for a Christian response is often even either we as Christians haven't engaged the topic to actually understand that's the experience. If we're just hearing the debates, actually often we don't get the experience of people. So actually we need to bring that to the forefront first so that, so as Jesus did, he sees suffering and his heart responds. Uh, that's really important. And also because we have to put our hands up and say Christian response on issues of gender and sexuality in, in kind of broader context have just been bad. And people do not assume that the heart response of Christians towards transgender people is one of love and compassion. And so actually, although we might say one of it might come obviously to us, actually I think we have to be explicit about it because we've just as historically as a church not done well with it. So I think that is vitally important as a, a starting point. And because there are still many Christians across the world who are saying things, writing things, posting things, which are evidently not at all expressing love towards people experiencing gender dysphoria who identify as trans. Number four is that compassion should come first. In matters relating to what is often unhelpfully termed the culture wars over things like sexuality, trans and racial injustice, our first and instinct and reflex response ought to be one of compassion at stories of another's suffering. Too often, upon hearing about or reading some story in the news, we react with opinion. Well, I think this, or the Bible says this. Jesus' reaction to another's suffering instead was different. As the embodiment of the incarnated God, he led with identification and compassion. In fact, four times in Matthew's Gospel, the phrase, he had compassion or I have compassion appears. Andrew Bunt's model when thinking about the transgender experience is hugely helpful. He said we must engage with A, a heart response, B, a head response and C, a hope response. And his helpful phrase, which is also the title of a new Grove booklet out on the subject written by himself, is this is about people, not pronouns. People, not pronouns. Hurting people know that they're in pain. What they often are after is an answer to the question, however, does anybody else know that I'm in pain or care that I'm in pain? To have compassion literally means to suffer alongside another, to enter into another's experience of pain and discomfort. If that doesn't sound like a model for Christ-like engagement, I don't know what is. Number four, compassion should come first. Lastly, my standout comment from season one comes from a conversation I had with Johnny Meller. I asked him the question, why is it that you think that so many Christians, people within evangelicalism, struggle to live with mystery? Here's what he said. I wonder, I mean... I just scattergun. Let, let's just try a, a few things. I think one of the critiques of churches like mine would be um, a kind of lust for certainty, defining Christianity as a, a way to know everything. Um, I think that's um, that can be a problem, and I, I think that can lead to pride. Um, and so, if if we're if we're really like these things are totally sacrosanct cannot be questioned now there must be some fundamentals there must be but if we put that out too far like and make lots of them like that becomes for someone who's just like well someone who's just honest they'll just say well wait the emperor's got new clothes no clothes <laughs> that there's ridiculous <laughs> and and there are ridiculous things in in our churches uh, there are um and there's ridiculous things in christian culture just because that's what cultures do that's what traditions do we're humans we're ridiculous in, in many ways 
Number five is that we have an unhealthy lust for certainty. Honestly, this comment and indeed so much of the conversation with Johnny Miller has run on loop in my head ever since I spoke to him. We have an unhealthy lust for certainty. Honestly, he may as well have just dropped the mic and left the Zoom room at that point. It made such an impression on me. So many of us seem to struggle under and multiply the weight of our suffering by insisting on trying to find soul-satisfying answers to too many of the why questions. Asking the questions is fine, but insisting on finding answers to them is difficult. We may be a people with access to Google, but that doesn't mean that everything that there could possibly be known and every answer to every question we ask is possible and out there within reach of our understanding. Being a creature properly positioned in the world requires us to accept our limits and then requires us also to learn to trust God with the difference between our questions and our limitations. That isn't to encourage a retreat into the darkness of superstition, but it is to enable us to view all of life's unknowables through the lens of Christ's coming. In the world you will have trouble, Jesus said, and yet because of his coming and dying and rising, whatever trouble we encounter rules out for us the possibility that God is unfeeling, uncaring or disinterested in our pain. This means that in a world where some things, the secret things, belong to the Lord, as it says in Deuteronomy, we're left, nevertheless, with a great deal of unknowables. Jesus' coming means that we can still, however, find peace and quiet and even joy by learning to trust God with that uncertainty. Those five things, those five gems, let's recap them. Number one, shift the conversation from talking about mental illness to mental wellness. Number two, Christians are meant to be citizens of the city of God, not the city of man. Number three, the reality of racism affects everyday choices for people of colour. Number four, compassion should come first in the culture wars. And number five, we too often have an unhealthy lust for certainty. Those five things have done me the world of good this year, and I pray that they can help you too. In September, in just a couple of weeks' time, we are embarking on another season of the Life and Leadership podcast, kicking things off with an honest and heartfelt conversation with Natalie Williams of Jubilee Plus. I can't wait to share it with you. Ahead of season two, however, we are also still looking for contributors to the show. So if you would like to have a conversation with me or if you know someone that you think would be good to talk to, please do get in touch. You can email me at podcast at newgroundchurches.org. And for season two, we're specifically wanting to shift the focus of the conversation to hearing about the experience of Christians in our churches. You out there listening to this, how you are working out your calling in the workplace outside of perhaps a church employment scenario. So do please get in touch with us. Until then, until that season, I hope that you're keeping well and I pray that you keep pursuing Jesus with everything you have. He is our joy and the reason for our hope. God bless you. Stay well and speak soon. Bye-bye.